Radio Mano Papachango. Good morning, Chris. This is Lori. I know we're both doing van life right now, so I just wanted to give you this little snippet of mine. You know, it's hot this week in Oregon, and so it makes it a little bit different, like where you try to find your spot. You want to be in something that's a little bit cooler, but not too many mosquitoes. So this morning I pulled over to have my coffee, and I saw like a nice lawn, and I thought, well, this is the perfect spot to be. And I pull in, and I park the van, and I'm sitting here drinking my coffee, writing in my journal and I hear yipping and yipping and I'm not a big dog person but I thought of all the places that I was drawn to I'm hanging in the yard of a big dog hotel and those poor dogs in there are going crazy I think you can't hear the yipping over the traffic right now but I hope you're finding good spots to be in and you're having good coffee where you're waking up and all's well Dane calling you from South Florida Uh, Amid the new epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic here, uh, people never cease to amaze me. Just wanted to give you a shout out. I came across your podcast recently thanks to Mr. Theo Rossi after you sat in on his podcast and am really enjoying both the thought-provoking topics but also the, the coverage of your favorite reading materials and the motivation that I get from some of your discussions as well. And also really digging the musical inserts that you put into your show. And so I wanted to give you a heads up on a band that came to my attention um, on the cusp of my parents passing away. I lost my father, and then 13 months later I lost my mother, and then about nine months later COVID hit us hard as a rock. So it's been a heck of a two- to three-year period. But the band is called the Vegabonds, like D-E-G, like veg Bonds, and the song is called Take a Ride, Giving Your Propensity for Your Road Trips, and this song's focus on connection to family, community, and just uh, kind of chilling out in the midst of chaos. I thought you'd like it. So anyway, thank you once again for everything you do, and I will continue listening to your podcast in reverse order as far back as I can take it, and I'm really enjoying it. So thank you once again, sir. Later. Thank you, Lori and Shane. Yes, Lori, I am in a very nice spot right now, I got to say, having coffee by a giant lake in northern Montana. It's actually a reservoir, but they call it Lake Kukanusa. It uh, spans the border with uh, Canada. I'm on a little peninsula jutting out onto the lake really nice camp spot among uh, fir trees by the way if you're in a part of the world where there are douglas fir trees which are long very straight trunks uh, the bark is flat and kind of looks like terracotta plates with uh, fissures between it between the plates um Get up real close to one and stick your nose into one of those fissures 
and breathe in and you will be amazed at what you smell. It's extraordinary. Uh, it's a, it's like butterscotch, cinnamon, vanilla, just these deep, sweet, almost syrupy smells coming from this giant pine tree. It's really interesting. This episode is with a guy named J.R. Martinez. Um, you know, the Buddhists say that there are basically, you know, two parts of life. There's what happens to you and there's how you respond to it. And you only have control over the latter. You have no control over the former. None of us do. But we have far more control over how we respond to things than we're led to believe. I think that's a a thread that runs through a lot of the conversations that you've heard on this podcast. You know, Wim Hof is all about how we're taught to believe that if we're exposed to very cold water for more than a few minutes, we'll get hypothermia and die. And there he is sitting in ice water for whatever it was, two and a half hours saying, that's not true. That's not true. There are other ways to respond to situations, to events, to stimuli than what we're told to believe is the way it works. We're told to believe that, that we have no control over these involuntary responses. Think of the word involuntary. When in fact, we have so much more control than we're taught to believe than we're told we do. Uh, J.R. Martinez is a guy who was in Iraq when his vehicle, um, I guess, um, drove over next to an explosive device. And next thing you know, I think 40% of his body is burned, including half his face. Uh, He survived the event, or someone survived the event. His body survived the event. And then, uh, and then 40 some operations later, he's looking at himself and saying, who the fuck is that? Who is that guy in the mirror? Where did I go? Where do I go now? We all face those moments. I, you know, we all look in the mirror and, and, wonder where that guy went, where that woman went, where the girl went. And who is that looking back at us? And where do we go? Um, but I think J.R. probably faced that moment in a, in a way that was much more concentrated and stark and um, dealt with kinds of physical pain and emotional pain that Uh, For better or worse, most of us will never have to really uh, confront. And as you're going to hear, the way he dealt with it is fucking awesome. 
I've got a lot of things to say, a lot of things to talk about, uh, about books I've been reading, uh, films I've seen, places I've been in the last couple of months. But rather than clutter up this episode with that, I'm just going to uh, to end it there, I think. And then I'm going to uh, record Aroma, because I haven't done that in a long time. So... I don't know whether this is going to be released first or they're all going to be released at once or what's happening. But I'm, I'm, uh, as I said, I'm on this peninsula. There's no Wi-Fi here, obviously. There's no phone connection here. There's nothing. Uh, and I've been out here a few days. Uh, I recorded a podcast with uh, Anya Kotz this morning. Uh, that'll be released once we get to Wi-Fi. And uh, as will this episode with J.R. Martinez and probably the Roma that I'm about to record in about uh, 15 minutes after I go take a swim in the lake and come back to this contraption. Uh, So everything's getting released at once because uh, it's being recorded in a place with no connectivity. So once I connect, it'll all just go up and I hope you're not overwhelmed by too much Uncle Chris all at once. I'm going to play you into this episode with the song that Dane suggested called Take a Ride by the Vegabonds, V-E-G, as like vegetable Vegabonds. Take a ride, and then uh, J.R. Martinez will bring us home. Thanks for listening to all this. Uh, I mean, this, yeah, I don't know. This is such a great conversation, such a cool guy. I mean, when I say thank you, I don't mean like it's an effort to listen to it. I just mean I appreciate your attention because I know there are a lot of good podcasts out there. There are a lot of interesting things to listen to, a lot of good books to read, movies to watch, YouTube. Uh, The world is full of things asking for your attention So, uh, and deserving of it, let's be honest. Um, so the fact that you've decided to spend some of your precious attention here is a true honor to me. So thank you for that. Hope you enjoy this. I'll talk to you again soon. Well, I'm running myself crazy. Trying to pay these bills I'm the thinnest I've ever been Cause I can't afford some meals But I'm doing what I love So I try not to complain When there's people losing jobs They ain't never liked anyway Every day Every day But I still need a break Yeah, every now and then Just to clear my head Talk to a good old friend So I call you up on a Saturday To see if you're around I got so much that's on my mind And I wanna skip this town Let's ride Times get bad They stick around, they lend a hand
there may understand what I'm out here trying to do. But I can't get there fast enough to see my mother smile and hug the neck of my father. I ain't seen him in a while. It's right. Yeah, let's ride. Do you wanna take a ride? Yeah, yeah. I wanna stay up all night, drink a beer with my best friend. Wanna see both of my granddaddies, they're the definition of men. I wanna drive fast and those back roads like I did when I was young. Yeah, break the law, then go to church, Lord, forgive me for what I've done. My people here are real, they don't leave when times get bad. They stick around, they lend a hand, and you'll see it for yourself. Let's Trying to do, but I can't get there fast enough to see my mother smile and hug the neck of my father. I ain't seen him in a while. Let's ride, let's ride. I'm headed home tonight. All right, I am uh, talking to a guy named J.R. Martinez, who, uh, shout out to our buddy Theo Rossi, who who put us in touch. He just said, I, I told him I, I was doing his podcast the other day, and um, I, you know, I told him I was just blasting him out because I'm about to go off in the van for the summer, and I'm doing like two or three a day, and he's like, dude, you should talk to my buddy J.R. He's incredible, and I was like, ah, oh, but I'm, I'm like doing all these things. I don't have time to research it, and he's like, just do it. He's cool, man. So... I apologize. Like, I, I know vaguely your story, but I, you know, I just watched your uh, Dancing with the Stars thing a few minutes ago. That's all you need to see. That's it, all that, you need to see. <laughs> well, my mom's going to be excited because she loves that show. So I'm sure she there knows you who you are. And So thanks for doing this, man. I, it's uh, No, thanks for fitting me in, uh, you know, before you cram into the van and take off and, and venture <laughs> off into the world, you know? Yeah. Into, into the woods. <laughs> Um, yeah, this, I tell you, there's, you know, we were talking, uh, my wife and I and our daughter, who's eight years old, we were talking about, I, I brought up, I said, we should take a road trip. We should just, mm. just take off. You know, there's nothing tying us to home right now, of course, given everything going on. Let's just go. And 
okay, we start brainstorming, where would we go? And, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, and uh, we start thinking about, I mean, it takes you, it seems like a day and a half to get out of Texas by itself. So you start, you know, narrowing down your selections based on how long does it take you to get there, and you're still in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember about eight years ago, we lived in L.A. at the time. I was really busy, and I had about a two to three week window where I had some free time. And I said to my wife, let's go somewhere. And our daughter was, I don't know, four months old. And she, my wife being from New York City, when they hear vacation, they noisily hear, let's go to the Bahamas and the beach. And and she's like, let's go. I was like, I'm not going to the Bahamas. I'm not flying five hours across country just to jump on a plane and do another three hours. Like, I'm always on a plane. I want to do something different. So my buddy says, hey, let's go to Montana. I'm doing a fundraiser in Montana for veterans. And me being a big veteran, a big, a big veteran advocate, because uh, of course I'm one myself, I was like, let's do it. So not only do I say let's do it, I rent this 40-foot RV, never driven one ever in my life, and I thought it'd be fun. I rent this thing, and we drive to Montana from Vegas. And it was one of the most incredible experiences of our life. And my wife was like, I don't want to go to Montana. And then by the time we were done, she was now putting bugs in my ear. Can we one day like buy land and buy a little house up here? Like, how can I get the coffee? How can I like, and so we were actually talking, do we go back to Montana? My daughter was even like, let's go to Montana, but she doesn't remember anything about it, but she's like, let's go there. So I envy you right now, man. I would love to take off and I think maybe we'll get there, but um, I envy you. And I think it's a beautiful thing to just go and just let the roads guide you. Oh, dude, I, I love it. I, I traveled for most of my 20s and 30s, you know, just backpacking around the world. And I just love that feeling of, you know, like I've got everything I need with me. I mean, I, I guess you guys get that in the military too. You're like, you got your pack. It's like, you know, shit gets weird. I can just hunker down here for a while. I got food. I got water. I got, you know, my knife, my, you know, and I had yeah. that feeling, you know, I got my tent. I got my sleeping bag. I got a rain jacket. I got uh, beef jerky. I got a bag of nuts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got a bottle You're of wine. Good. <laughs> I'm good to go. Um, but, uh, you know, now I'm in my 50s, so I'm not going to fucking hitchhike around the world with a backpack. Fuck that. I got a sprinter van. And it's, <laughs> it, I, you know, it's just a backpack for an old guy. That's pretty much all it is, I think. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a beautiful but, thing, too, because it, it the whole van was outfitted um, by a buddy that I met through the podcast, who's an auto mechanic. And he was just like, dude, let me help you with this van. I hear you talking about this van. I got a shop near you. And we've become really good friends. Um, no way. Yeah. So the van is is not just this physical thing, you know, that, that represents comfort and freedom and all that. But it's also, you know, a sort of a tangible, uh, I don't know, an artifact of friendship and love and generosity. And it's, yeah. I love it. I love it, man. Yeah. That's so. awesome, man. I think that's I think that's that's freaking awesome. Like, and it, it's a, you know, I think one of the one of the the gifts um, that I have been given is as you have as well, is to have had the opportunity to travel the world, to meet people from all walks of life, 
and to find there are so many similarities between all of us and so many people that speak a very different language than me, but yet we connect through body language, we connect through action, mm. and it's such a beautiful thing. And, and I think that's what, in many ways, you know, when people ask me, you know, how do you survive, JR, everything that you've survived? And I say, I think it, a lot of it has to do with perspective, is the perspective that I've been exposed to, is I've been exposed to, a, I mean, I was born in Louisiana. I was raised in Arkansas. And I graduated high school from Dalton, Georgia. So how do I have this perspective? Well, my family, my mother is from Central America, a small country called El Salvador. My father is from Mexico. My father left when I was nine months old. And my mom, when I was a child, would take me to El Salvador pretty frequently. Um, I probably went five or six times before I graduated from high school. And I remember going to El Salvador and, and meeting family members and seeing my cousins who lived very differently than I did. Yet, based on the United States chart, my mother and I were considered poor. And in some cases, some people would say even below the poverty line. My mother made, I think, $20,000 a year. I even asked the other day. And she was like, yeah, I made probably like $24,000, but that's when I became like a supervisor. But yet I go to El Salvador, and my family isn't in the capital, El Capital. They're five hours away from the capital. Mm -hmm. And then you get to this small town. Then you got to jump. Well, back then, you jump on a horse. Or you walk up this trail that is not paved, then you get to where the little opening in the fence is, and then you walk through these woods, and you hike up this mountain, and then have turned the corner, and there's this little house tucked in the woods, and that's where my family lives. No electricity, no running water, um, I, I mean... What a culture shock for me as a young kid. And I grew up wearing sometimes the same pair of jeans, recycling the same shirt throughout the week. It's not an uncommon story. We've heard this before. And yet, here I am in El Salvador being shown this different way of life. And my fondest memories are going to the creek and going out into the field with my uncle grabbing rocks and throwing them at these mango trees and just throwing them so hot, like throw it, trying to knock those mangoes down. And when you knock them down, you grabbed it and you just worshiped this and you enjoyed <laughs> it. And you sat on a rock and you looked out at the valleys and the peaks and you were just like, this is life. Yeah. And I came home and I was like, okay, who cares if I can't have the freshest pair of sneaks you know, that came out last week. That's what I believe is what has given me all the tools to survive because I've been exposed to people that have suffered in a very different way than what we Americans, what we have had to suffer, right? And as a parent, I'm constantly, I think it's even annoying at the point now where it becomes comical how often I look at our eight-year-old daughter and I'm like, hey, there's kids, hey, and she gets it because I took her to El Salvador when she was 
I don't know, five years, three years old. And she came to me as she's running around that same house and said, where are their toys? Hmm. Where's their electricity? Where's their beds? Where's their TV? It's perspective. And I think what you're doing and other people like you that just have been around the world, that have opened up their minds uh, to a different place, that's when you start becoming equipped with the tools of how people survive in other, in other parts of the world. Not only survive, but as you suggested, there are a lot of things about the simplicity of that kind of life that are superior mm-hmm. to the nonsense. You know, I met this chick, I was at a, uh, what was it called? Uh, uh, shit, I forget. It's this like exclusive bar. They have them. It's a club they have in different Soho house. It's a, you probably oh, when you yeah. were in LA, right? There's yeah. one in Hollywood, yeah, there's yeah, one yeah. out in Malibu, right? So I was at yeah. the one in Malibu because I have a buddy who goes there all the time. He's in the business and all that. Um, so, you know, I get on the list. I, I, I'm a freeloader. I don't pay for any of that stuff. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I'm there at, at, you know, Malibu House where a glass of red wine costs $16. Plus tip. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I'm talking to this chick and she grew up like her father was some kind of like big advertising dude. And she grew up in a mansion and had horses and went to, you know, some exclusive school where all those kids go, you know, in Malibu. And uh, and she was talking about how she had had a serious issue with pills. She'd been addicted to pills and. And she was she was cool though. She was like probably in her early thirties. She'd sort of been through it and was coming out the other side. And I said uh, I said something like, "Yeah, isn't it strange?" Because I was working on this book called Civilized to Death at the time, um, which uh, there was a whole section in there about the the sort of scam of the society telling us that money's going to make us happy, and then the people who actually get the money find out, ah, this was all bullshit. It doesn't actually mm-hmm. make me happy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said to her, isn't it strange that, you know, you grew up in this mansion with horses and, you know, millions and millions of dollars around and uh, and you were so unhappy that you got addicted to painkillers. And she said, listen, man, I don't know anyone from my high school who was happy. Nobody. Mm. Mm. And we're all rich kids. Right. <laughs> we're all the, we we're at the top of the mountain and nobody's happy. Yet the rest of us look at them and say, I want that life. I want to have what they have. But what is it? It's like like when people come up to me and say, thank you for your service. I say, thank you. I appreciate that. But do you understand what you're thanking me and every other service member for? Like we know everything on the surface. But do you understand what you're thanking me for? And... I haven't done this with everybody because I don't want to come across as an asshole either. Like I'm unappreciative, right. but right. to some people who I, I can sort of fill out and they're like, okay, uh, all right, I can, I can have this conversation with him. They'll say, well, because you, you went somewhere, you were willing to sacrifice and go somewhere else. And I was like, okay, yeah. But what, what do you know what we experienced there? Hmm. Do you know what we're exposed to there? Because if you knew that, that thank you would have so much more weight to it. And it might even turn into some action where you're one of our allies in raising awareness about the issues that veterans face when they come home and and they're trying to make that transition and and, and stand on their own two feet. And the couple people that I've tried this with, just because I've been curious about it, 
they've, wow, like, I, I guess I never really understood. And I said, yeah, because, you know, when we start to try to understand, it becomes very difficult and challenging. And then we want to go watch Tiger King, which is fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's, but it's, we aren't, we don't want to put ourselves in that position to literally learn about what's going on. And, you know, to your point about, you know, money and, and popularity, fame, um, you know, it's interesting for for the listener right now, you know, I grew up, as I mentioned, very poor, didn't have a lot, went to the military, deployed to Iraq six months after I joined the military. Um, I was in the United States Army. A month into my deployment, I'm injured. I'm 19 years old and I'm burned over 34% of my body from head to toe. And most of the burns, even though it's only 34%, and I, I can say that because I have friends that have been burned 60, 70, 80, 97%. Hmm. Mine is only 34, but the 34 that was burned was third degree. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty difficult. And I, for me, had to find what my purpose was again, had to find what it is that I wanted to do with my life. And I found this new purpose of using my voice and, and, and my experience to be able to help and inspire other people and allow them to understand they're not alone. I got involved in nonprofit work. I then realized I wanted to become a speaker. Then I dab into the entertainment space, become an actor. Then I go on, as you alluded to, Dancing with the Stars. And people just thought, oh, he's going to go home week three, week four. And I turn out winning the damn competition, Right. Yeah. So suddenly I, I was this guy that was just be able to walk through you know, I lived in LA at the time and you know LA, so you'll 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 know Ralph's uh, you know, is a is a supermarket there, the chain there. And I walked through Ralph's and it was no big deal, right? Versus after Dance with the Stars, I couldn't walk through a Ralph's. I I really? could barely go to a Starbucks or anywhere, right? It was it was so interesting to me how it then a matter of three freaking months of being on that show, suddenly I was catapulted to this this place right and you'd already and been on tv for a while at this point I'd been, right you were I'd all my children TV or something for, yeah i'd been on all my children for three years <laughs> and i could still walk in public if anything what i would experience oh you know because soap opera fans i love them they are incredible but they are into their stories right and i remember i would i could walk down the street because i started in new york city then the show relocated to los angeles and so here I am in New York City walking, and I remember one time walking past this lady on the street, and as she was passing me, she said, for God's sake, just kiss the damn girl. <laughs> and just kept walking. And I, and I stopped, and I looked at her, and you she never even looked back at me. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. And then I realized, she didn't even look back, though, but he, how I finally realized what she was referring to is she turned around and she didn't turn around. She just yelled out, I know it's you brought, because that was my character on the show. Uh, yeah. And I was like, oh my God. But that was about the extent of what I experienced versus Dancing with the Stars three months. I, I couldn't, I couldn't walk down the street without, I mean, I went to Universal for an event in, in Los Angeles and suddenly I walk out and it's just like bombards of crowds. And I was like, what the hell is this? But, I suddenly found myself now in demand. 
I was the hot thing and everybody was calling me and everybody was booking me and I was traveling everywhere. And I just remember probably about a year, 18 months to two years into this, I started feeling run down. Yeah. I started to feel overwhelmed. I started to not be connected with what I really truly love to do in the very first place, which is like inspire people and 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 try to help people navigate through all the, you know, the challenges and adversity. And what I realized, and I had to go to therapy for this, and my best friend, it started with him, and then he encouraged me to go to therapy. I then realized, oh, we have been led to believe that happiness is being busy. Is to, how cool is it to say, oh, Gerald, what do you have going on? Oh, man, I'm so busy. I have this thing going on, that thing going on, this thing going on. In all reality, when you really look back at it, yeah, I may have like five things that are going on, but I'm probably doing every single one of them at 65%, maybe 50%. I mean, I'm not getting in at 90% or 100%. I'm not giving my best. And I'm making money, and that's great. But I wasn't happy because now I was being run into the ground. There was something else that it, it was taking something away from me. And... I've realized now, and Theo and I have talked about this a lot, less is more. And oh, yeah. that whole belief of you have to grind and 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 do all of the above, it's like, no, once you start with one thing first, and then you can go and maybe take on two. Once you've actually accomplished that task, then you can venture out. But money isn't everything. Fame isn't everything. And for me now, I here I live in Austin, Texas. I have my wife, my daughter. We have our two dogs. Man, this is awesome. I love this. Like, I love talking to you. I love getting to know what you're up to and, and learning about your life, as I'm sure you love with all your guests. And But I, I love being able to do that from the comfort of my home. <laughs> like, I love hanging out with my clique. Like, I love being on the road. I love that too. But this is where it's at for me now. Did you feel... I mean, you, man, you raised so many questions for me um, when you were talking just now. Uh, the whole thank you for your service thing. Um, that's always been problematic for me, too, because uh, I, you know, I feel like in American society, when someone gets called a hero, they're about to be exploited. You know, it's like it's like you got a job and your boss says, hey, I got some great news for you. Uh, you're being you're promoted to assistant regional manager. And uh, you say, was there what's the raise associated with? Oh, there's no raise. But now you're assistant manager. Like, oh, you're supposed <laughs> to be real happy. Right. Because they're calling you a different name now. You, you know? got a title, um, different title. <laughs> you got a different. Yeah. You used to be associate regional manager. And uh you know, when I see people being called heroes, I think, you know, I grew up in the Vietnam era, right? I was a kid during the Vietnam War. Uh, one of my uncles came back totally fucked in so many different ways, um, never recovered from it. And uh, 
you know, I, I kind of see this thing where, where we're saying, oh, the heroes, the, the first responders at 9-11 who ran into the buildings and pulled people out and breathed in all that shit. And then 10 years later, when they all have lung cancer and they're dying, the government's like, yes, sorry, we're not going to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how many homeless vets are, are sitting on the streets of L.A. right now begging for change? That There's no justice there. And so to say, I kind of feel like there's this theater of appreciation. Thank you for your service. And the jets fly over the football game. And, you know, the president puts a wreath at the fucking tomb of the unknown soldier. But where's the money? Where's the, you know, where's the support? Where's the housing? Where's the, I read recently, there's like a three-year waiting list for, for counseling, for PTSD, for vets who are coming back. Yeah. Um, and also, I don't feel, and I hope this doesn't offend you, I don't mean this in any personal way, but I don't feel that since World War II, any soldier has done anything for me. I, I don't think America was threatened by Afghanistan or Iraq or, you know, the death squads in El Salvador or Nicaragua or, you know, like we could go on and on. I, I don't really see a war since World War II that has been in defense of American society. So I feel terrible for for guys who get out of high school and don't know what else to do and join the military and then get from my perspective get used and tossed away when they're you know when the government's done with them i I, this might be a really unpopular position to put you in (laughs) i don't know no 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 no. listen i you know i i i've been in plenty of rooms as i'm sure you have where we all disagree on one thing or another and i think that's part of growth as to be able to, I think what you miss out a lot of in our society is the ability to look at it, sit down with one another and say, I disagree with you, but yet cheers. Yeah. You know, we don't have to yeah. sit here and go to blows. We don't no sit, have to sit here and storm off and never talk to one another. Let's actually, okay. All right. I, okay. That's your opinion. That's cool. I, I, I believe this, but I'm willing to sit down at the table and have a conversation with you. And I love this personally. So you know, you've heard this. Every service member that returns, that serves, they don't like to be called a hero. Neither do I, right? Many of us were doing our job, whether it was in Vietnam or even prior, they were drafted or even now, now it's voluntarily you chose. Like, we don't feel that way. We just feel like we're doing what we were asked to do, what we were told we had to do. I don't particularly feel like a hero. I Now, here we are. 14 years after the invasion in Iraq, I was 19 years old when I went over to Iraq. What I was told, like all of us were, there were weapons of mass destruction. Now here I am, you know, 17 years later. I don't know why I said 14. My math was off. It's 17 years later. <laughs> and there's no, as we all know, there was no weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. You know, but for me, how do I... Like, how do you justify, right? I almost lost my life. So many men and women did lose their lives. So many other men and women have been affected, not physically, but emotionally and mentally, like your uncle. And you sort of have to find something. And for me, I remember early on, it was about, well, you go over to every... Like you talk to a lot of service members and they'll tell you that being overseas, you help the people, right? The people are grateful, 
right? And you're like, okay, that's fantastic. You help them. But then when you hear about the issues that our service members are facing when they come home, you're like, well, okay, you help them, but who's helping me? Because I was willing to put myself in that position because my leaders told me that's where I needed to be and to carry out a certain mission, but now what? And sometimes I play in my head, shit, what was it for? I mean, I understand 9-11 happened. I understand, you know, the, the threat that there was in our country. I understand the innocent lives that were lost. But what I don't understand is maybe the following actions. Did we go to the right place? Was our strategy, you know, the right strategy? Did, were we prepared for the amount of service members that were going to be injured, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally? Because I'll tell you this, my training was cut short in order for me to get to my unit and then in order for me to get to deploy. And right. that's not uncommon. That, that happens frequently. No. But I tell you what is uncommon is that on the back end, when we're home, well, we got to wait for the paperwork to process. Right. Well, we have to wait for this and for that. Well, that's BS because if you can expedite it on the front end, you should be able to expedite it on the back end. That's what because I'm saying. I think eventually, yeah, because I yeah. think eventually what's going to happen is that this whole honorable thing of being a voluntary military, I think eventually you're going to have people catch on and say, well, I'm not going to join because they're, I'm hearing all these horror stories. I, why am I going to put myself in that position? Well, you're the National Guard. They weren't supposed to deploy to foreign wars. You know, yeah. guys who joined the National yeah. Guard, they were supposed to serve stateside. And next thing you know, that's, they're sending them to Iraq. Yep. Active duty National yeah. Guard, as you know, like that was like, you know, the weekend warriors is, you know, they have been pegged. But in the last, you know, 19 years, they have deployed more in some cases than active duty themselves. And I feel like it's even more challenging for them because they had their careers, they had their routines, their families, and they're uprooted. And then when they we return home early on, they couldn't go back to those same jobs. Yeah, A lot of the employers filled those positions with somebody else. So now... Now, what you look at, there's 22 veterans that commit suicide every single day. That's still to this day. At this very moment that you and I are talking, that's still, that's real. When you look at the average age, they're not 19, 20, 21-year-olds. They're like 40s. They're older. And a lot of it is because of National Guards and active duty service members. Like, yeah. and it's by insane. The way, I- so it... Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, I, I think that number is actually a lot higher because they're not counting overdose deaths, alcoholism mm. death, yes. right? Yeah. They're just counting yeah. straight up obvious suicide. There are a lot of guys who are dying of despair um, Absolutely. that doesn't necessarily get called suicide. And now they're actually looking at the family members. And now they're actually looking at children of those troops that are unfortunately taking their own lives. The family members, because it's affecting everybody. And it, it, you're right. Like sometimes you're like, it sucks that you've done what you've done for this country, but this country cannot, like even when, when during political season, right? Like when there's debates, 
how how often do we see these debates that are you know televised where they bring up veterans issues why because it's not it's it's not as popular less than one percent serve in our military so it's not a popular topic that affects everybody but if you right. bring up health care or if you bring up you know, like a, a, a disease like cancer that is universal and affects a lot of people, people can relate to that. People connect to that. But people don't connect to the military unless like you have an uncle that you knew of or anybody else that either served themselves or know somebody. So you suddenly have this topic that deserves just as much attention, but because it doesn't appeal to the masses because they don't deal with it, we're not going to discuss it. So then what yeah. happens? There's budget cuts when it comes to our military and just all these things get pushed to the waistline. And at the end of the day, veterans and troops, sometimes they feel it feels like they're just numbers. Well, dude, yeah. I, I, you know, it's there's a certain category of things that are uh, hard to talk about because of the emotional um, explosiveness of them. And this is definitely one of them. But those things are exactly what need to be talked about more, as you're suggesting. Um, you know what? I, I have buddies who are veterans. And, and one of the things I've heard them say is, like, I can't. When we have these political conversations, the, the, the one of the things they say is, like, I, it can't have been for nothing. Right. Like I lost buddies over there. That can't have been for nothing. Right. I can't yeah. let that be meaningless. And I understand the emotional logic of that. But unfortunately, I feel like the the actual sort of, you know, political or or uh, or historical logic goes the other way and says, man, wars are fought for nothing all the time. No, nobody can still explain what World War One was about, right? Hundreds of thousands of guys dying on one battle, one day. No one really even knows what the hell they were fighting about a hundred years later. Um, so it's it's a strange thing where there's like, it's it's hard to talk about something that need, that at the same time desperately needs to be talked about. Um, yeah, it's, I remember this uh, interview with Sebastian Junger that I thought was really touching. You know who he is, the writer? Mm -hmm. The he writer, The yep. Perfect Storm. And he wrote a book called mm -hmm. Tribe that's about uh, yes. military. Remember, and he did this, uh, he was embedded with the Marines in the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan for a year, I think, with this one unit, at, like the tip of the spear. And they were getting shot at every day. And it was just like a miserable place. They weren't getting any support. It was really bad. And I remember someone asked him, like, why do they do this? Like, why do these guys go over there and fight their asses off and go through all this misery and get hurt and, you know, go through all this stuff? They don't they don't care about trade routes or oil reserves or, you know, geopolitical strategy. Uh, why do they do it? And he said they they do it out of love for each other. He's like, they don't, they're not thinking about, like, is this right or wrong? They're just doing their job. They know they have to do it together, and they're not going to abandon their buddies. Mm -hmm. And I, that touched me so much because it was like, it was such an example of how, from my perspective, corrupt institutions can, can leverage the best qualities of human beings against their own interests. You know what I mean? Like, you're taking your love for your brother 
and you manipulating that in a way that you get people to do things that if they really thought about it, they wouldn't do. That's not in their interest to do it. Right. Well, I mean, you're so right. I mean, a lot of my friends who deployed multiple times will tell you that for them, and even the short amount of time that I was in, in combat, it wasn't, it wasn't about weapons of mass destruction. It wasn't about anything else that later we heard what it was about. It, it really was about each other because it was a matter of relying on one another to get each other home safely. And that that's all it was about. It was like, I can't sit here. I don't have enough headspace to think about why we're here, how long we're going to be here, who's yeah. in charge of this. I have enough headspace to think about, I got to eliminate that threat that is trying to take you out and take me out. And I have to eliminate it because I want you and both me and everybody else to go home. And that that's why so many service members, when they come home, they have a really difficult time because they can't find that same bond in the civilian world. You don't find that same thing. You can go to any job and you don't find it. And for many of them who want to, you know, many of them who will go to states like Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, because they just want to be away from everybody because they're trying to figure it out and process. They're trying to find that thing. And it's just, it's hard. It's incredibly challenging to find. And for me, that was the only thing that, that has allowed me to survive to this point. And I had to find who was going to be that man and woman that I felt like I was going to fight for because mm-hmm. I couldn't do it overseas in Iraq. So who's that person I'm going to fight for now that gives me life and purpose. And when I started to learn about the shortcomings of our country and taking care of our service members, I, I, that was it. That was my thing. I jumped right. on that and that was my way of fighting the battle to help them come home. And we've heard the term of Vietnam veterans will say, thank you for your service. Welcome home. Because in many cases, you're never really truly home because a part of you is still somewhere else. And I wanted to try to find a way to help people truly come home spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and heal in some way. But that's it. That that's, that is the reason we do it. I mean, the, the bond that you create when you're embedded with somebody for however long, it's just, it's just you. It's just each other. Yeah. There's no other distractions. There's, it's not, you know, my father-in-law was 27 years NYPD and he and I will sit around and we'll drink and we'll talk shit to one another and debate about, you know, I'll tell him, thank you for your service. He's like, no, no, no. What you did is more than what I did. And and I say, dude, like every, like, and we, and we go back and forth about this all the time. And, and I say to him, I was like, you know, and, and, and law enforcement, and he said for him, yes, you develop a bond, but it's mostly like, who's your direct little unit, right? Who's your direct partner? That's who you're going to be with most of the time. But you go home. You have a few days off, right? Mm. When you're deployed in a time of combat, no, it's like six months, a year, 18 months together, nonstop. It's like a whole other level of quarantine. <laughs> like 
that's all you got. And yeah. that's tough, man. It's tough. And I just don't, I don't think that our country was prepared. And I think part of the reason why we weren't prepared to take care of our service members that, as you alluded to, are homeless or, 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 or abusing alcohol or, or using alcohol and drugs, unfortunately, to, to cope um, with a lot of the scars that, that they have. I directly, I say directly that is because when we said we're going there, we weren't prepared. We had no idea. And I think part of that is also because of medical advancements. Hmm. Yeah, good point. I, I, would have, I would have died 35 years ago in combat. I would have died. And as you, the wars you alluded to, World War One, World War Two, Korea, like Vietnam, like we all died. We, like there's no... You see a double amputee, a triple amputee, a quadruple. You see, like, somebody burned 70%, six, like, uh, we died. We died. But because our medical field has improved and advanced so much, you're saving all of these young men and women. But now you have to deal with the other scar. Right. Now you got to deal with the other wound that exists. Yeah. And honestly, it exists in all of us. It's just heightened because of what they've seen and what they've been exposed to and potentially what they've had to do. I I told my wife recently, I'm 19 years old. I'm at war. And I remember getting a briefing one time that if you're in a convoy, if somebody were to stop in front of your, walk in front of your vehicle, you keep going Mm. think about that a 19 year old who just a few years before started learning how to drive and has been taught when you take the driving test when someone is in front of you you stop yeah and now is having to rewire their brain to say to be told don't stop right because that can be a setup to an ambush right what the? F- <laughs> yeah. And I remember sitting there as a 19 year old who I was a private, mind you. I think it's I have to preface it by saying I was a private. So if you know anything about the military ranking system, privates do not speak. They are not meant to be heard. They are meant to do everything right. and anything that is asked. They do. That's what that's their job. That's it. And I rem- I remember standing up. Which I always tell people, if I would have been injured, I eventually would have been kicked out because I questioned everything. Mm. I mm. questioned everything and everybody. And I remember standing up and saying, what? Explain that again? And my sergeant was uh, irritated that he had to explain that to me. And I remember snapping back at him and just telling him, hey, man, if you don't explain this to me and if I don't understand it, you might die. So take the time to explain this to me. If I wouldn't have been physically injured and I just would have finished out my tour and came home, tell me I'm not a different person because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, you, you are obviously animated and you have a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. Uh. Yeah, were you like this before? I mean, you were a kid, so it's hard to say, right? But yeah. did you have this this kind of energy and focus? 
You know, what you said earlier about perspective and how it's all about forming perspective. Now, you suggested that, you know, when you were a kid and you went to Salvador, you, uh, you know, you started to learn those lessons uh, that now you've applied in a very deep way uh, in your own life, you know, overcoming your, your medical issues and uh, finding purpose. And, um, man, I saw a thing you were doing on Nightline, I think it was. Uh, there was an interview with you, and there was a photograph of your mother. And man, she, what a beautiful woman. I, I hope that doesn't yeah. come across creepy, but she just, like, <laughs> I, I, I saw that photograph of her, and it was like, that creepy is a would powerhouse. Be if I found, creepy would be if I found out you were my father. That would be <laughs> creepy. <laughs> like, that would be a trip. You it, might inherit like, a van, dude. <laughs> <laughs> A well souped up van. Yeah, <laughs> it's a nice van. Let me tell you. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, like I mean, you know, my mom is an incredibly beautiful woman, and but I'll tell you this, and this is why, like for me, as much as I'm physically injured, I talk a lot about the mental injuries and my mental recovery, my emotional recovery, and that is directly connected to my mother. You know, my mother, um, you know, my mother has been through a lot of trauma in her life. My mother um, was given away by her her mother. Uh, my mother was abused as a child. My mother lost a child. My sister, who is six at the time, um, my mother has dealt with a lot of abandonment. And there's something incredibly honorable in that. Where my mother, even in relationships when I was a young boy, found herself in some really abusive relationships. And I witnessed it. I had to call 911. Again, we've heard this story, unfortunately, many times. And I remember that my mother would always still put on this incredible smile. Would walk out the house with this beautiful smile, because she has an incredible smile, an incredible laugh. And she would still walk out into the world with this beautiful smile. And I remember I was a young boy and I was probably, I don't know, seven years old. And I asked her, why do you smile so much? Like, I know what happened. There's nothing to smile about. And she said to me, I smile to invite the blessings. Mm. Wow, that's beautiful. And as a kid, I'm like, she's crazy. Like, I have no idea what the hell she's talking about. Now, as an adult, I'm like, oh, I, I see how she's rewiring her brain. But on the flip side, what I also witness is that my mother, by putting on this facade, because that's what we're told to do, right? You can't talk about this. You can't have sort of a, a breakdown. You can't explain to people that you're hurting, People don't know what to do. People feel uncomfortable. People don't know how to just be silent and let you vent, right? Because none of us really know how to sit with ourselves, right? That that takes practice. Yeah. yeah. And because my mother never got those tools, because one of her culture as well, because of her gender, I mean, you can go on and on and on. I it now I my, what happened to me was the trigger to all of those emotions. Mm. So almost losing me was the, tr it, everything was heightened, elevated. It became, she, now all of those emotions that she buried, 
because she had to, because I was her purpose for moving forward. She couldn't dwell on them. Now that I, I was injured, like her purpose was taken away and all of those wounds and scars came to the forefront. So now my mother was a very different person. Mm. My mother was, would say she was suicidal at times. This is after my injury. It took my mother 10 years to put up a photo of the way I look now up in the house. Mm. 10 years. That clearly tells you she did not accept for 10 years what I'd looked like. And that, oh man, that hurt me because yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking I'm walking around the streets with this shit. Like I'm alive, mom, at least like I'm the one getting the looks, not you. And so for me, I have been, why I think I'm almost obsessed with trying to help people is because I've tried to help my mother and my mother has refused to meet me in that space. And one of the hardest things I had to learn how to do, and I have like, it took me a while to get to this place is I had to, through therapy, through professionals that have guided me through this work. I had to learn how to put up boundaries mm. because every time I spoke to my mother, it was toxic and it was filled mm. with, you know, just this, this negative thing. And, you know, in every culture, the mother is the queen. The mother is everything. But in my culture, being Hispanic, I mean, you're, I'm supposed to live with her right now, right? I'm supposed to still be in her house living with her. And she's supposed to still, like, that's what the belief is. Yeah. And for me to say the words that I had to put up boundaries, that was tough. But I had to do it because it was interfering with my own recovery process. She was always taking me back to a place taking me back. And all I was doing was trying to say to her, we should continue to smile, right? To invite the blessings. Mm. But her purpose was taken away. So she didn't believe in that same concept and that principle anymore because she never sat with herself to deal with it. Like if, right, I, I've been through some stuff, right? Not only that, but I've been, and I'll tell you straight up, man, because I feel like, I feel like even though we're not physically together, like I feel like we can have a beer and just sit here and just talk, but. Oh yeah. I'll tell you, like, my wife, when we were dating, a lot was thrown at us in a short amount of time. Her 17-year-old sister unexpectedly passed away. Multiple autopsies, they say natural causes. My career takes off. I'm gone. I'm busy. Oh, she's also, we're also expecting our first child. Hmm. So much was thrown on our plate. I'll tell you, a year into our relationship, we ended it. It was, it, it just, it was too much for our young relationship. We didn't have the resources, the skills. It took work, man, for us to get to the place of where we are now, where we love each other, we're together, we're married, and our family's together. But I, as well as she, had to go and figure out what are those things that we individually have to do so that way in order for us to collectively grow as a unit and break the cycles. And that's what my motivation is. I just want to break the cycles. I'm, yeah. I'm tired of the cycles, generational curses, societal curses. I'm tired of all of these 
experiences that have been handed down to me and I've been told that I just have to accept because that's my fate. That's bullshit. And I don't believe in that one bit. I believe that we, all of us, at a certain point in our lives, I always tell people this, you have to think of your life as if it's a book. Think of the first few chapters of your book have already been written for you because that's our our history, family, where we're from. At a certain point, you learn how to write. At a certain point, well, now you learn how to type. Guess what? You now have the power to write what that middle is and how it's going to end. But at a certain point, you got to take control of that. You can't sit here and keep pointing the finger at everybody else. You can't rely on somebody else to be your lifeline. You have to generate and create your own lifeline for yourself. And that takes silence. That takes a lot of silence. And I tell you, we're talking about this place that you are. We're not going to disclose it because we don't want the lo- the locals don't want us to disclose it yet. But you're somewhere in this beautiful place, and I'm not going to be the guy to disclose it. But in this place, I used to go it. there. <laughs> <laughs> like I used to go there in my early 20s when I was a mess, man. When I was a mess, and when I say I spent three years in the hospital recovering physically. And when I got out into the world, I was now 22 years old, soon to be 23. And I thought I was going to be out in the world and I was going to be this motivational speaker and everybody was going to book me. That was my, that was my goal. And that was my perception. It didn't happen that way. But now because I'm now 22 years old, what am I doing? I'm drinking. I'm angry. There's a lot of rejection. People aren't listening, which I feel is an issue. And we talked about earlier. People aren't listening. When I'm telling them, hey, these are my experiences and I feel I can offer something to you. People are not listening to what it is that I feel like I can offer to them. And instead, they're telling me, "Uh, eh, just go speak to veterans. That's probably better suited for you. That all that did is triggered all of these emotions that I had while that I experienced during the military and also prior. I was drinking, I was reckless, I was a pissed off kid, I was bitter. I easily, when I tell people that I'm lucky to be here today, it's not only because I survived Iraq, it's because I survived the stuff that I put my, the situations I put myself in. Drinking, yelling, like I, being in a car, driving, like I thank God every single day that he's, that he, just looked over me and he took care of me, but I easily could have fell into that easily. Well, there's and no way you, you wouldn't have been incredibly angry, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's well, almost, because yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. It's because it's, it's because like in a short amount of time that I was in the army, I joined the army and, and my idea was I'm going to do three years, right? That's it. I'll, I'll get out when I'm 22 and I'll move on with my life. I've given to my country. I've, I've gotten benefits from it. Like, I'll move on. I got in it and I got a little taste of this thing called service, right? And that started to become my purpose. And then I started to feel this camaraderie thing. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I think I love this. And whatever else it is that I thought I was going to do with my life wouldn't give me the same feeling. So why would I go pursue those things? I'm going to do this for 20 years. So I start restructuring, rewiring my mind. And taking out that notepad and started writing out my new goals and plans, right? Boom. April 5th, 2003, ran over a landmine. Oh, also, <laughs> prior to my injury, my whole life growing up, I was always called handsome. 
no one ever came up to me and said, you have an incredible personality, right? Like no one says that. They say you're attractive, like I'm attracted to you, but they don't say what part of you. And so I had this belief of, well, people are attracted to me because of my appearance. You know, I had this curly hair. Girls like to play with my curly hair and whatever. Now I'm bald at the age of 19 years old and I'm scarred. I'm not wearing the uniform. I don't have a purpose. I can't serve. And people are not giving me an opportunity. I was pissed, man. My identity was completely stripped away from me. And it felt like it happened like that. I mean... Just snap of a fingers, boom, it, I was this brand new person. And the only way that I get to where I am today, where I can honestly tell you that I've healed both inside and out, is I had to accept that, that who that person was, he's dead. And so I too had to grieve. I too had to grieve as if I lost someone because I did. Yeah. Are you still in physical pain? So not so much. Um, I have, you know, the, the, probably the only real things that um, are, are, are challenging because of my injury are uh, any burn survivor will tell you that when they have skin grafts, the skin is incredibly fragile and I can tell you that I'll walk around my house and suddenly, you know, either my wife or our daughter or I'll look back and I'll like, where that blood from? Mm-hmm. And I'll see that I hit my hand on something, mm-hmm. something that you will do and anybody else will do and it won't even pierce. But yet for me, because my skin's so fragile, like I'm bleeding all the time. Right. Right. I mean, I can hit it on anything and it's so sensitive. So that's annoying because <laughs> especially when my wife likes to decorate and has nice things. And then she's like, you're getting blood all over my shit. And it's like, I'm sorry. Like I can't control it. I'll wear gloves. I promise. Like, I don't know what to do. Um, but then also the other thing that's probably that that's really challenging is um, like my, this is really, I don't really, I haven't really shared this much, but I, I will hear. Cause I feel like we could do that is like my head. And what I mean by my head, I don't mean like my brain, my mind. I mean, I've had all these procedures. Um, I had this procedure called tissue expanders done. And this is part of me trying to recapture who I was before I was injured. That when I was injured, I had just on the right side of my head, I had a small strip of hair. And the rest of my head, third degree burn, there was no more hair. And I was like, I want my hair back. (laughs) And the doc said, well, we could do this procedure called tissue expanders. And all it is, we put a breast implant in that area that we want to stretch. And once a week for three or four months, we inject it with saline. Then at the end of those three or four months, you have this huge knot, right? Wherever they put it. But they go into the OR, they drain it. And when they take the tissue expander out, there's this excess skin that mm-hmm. now has created hair. So then what you do is you take that and you pull it as far as it'll reach and sew it in. And I was like, let's do it. So I did one and I was like, okay, got a little coverage. Then I was like, well, let's do it again. Because of course it didn't cover the whole head. And this time I was really risky. And I was like, let's do two at one time. One right here on the front and one in the back. <laughs> 
so it can really get a lot of that coverage. He said, okay, let's do it. So I do it. At the end of four months, I look at, you know, how much coverage I have. And you can see me, man, I got like still patches on the left side of my head. And I was like, that's bullshit. I'm not doing that again. Like, that's enough. Like, I'm just going to go bald. I'm going to accept that. I'm going to embrace that. Right. But because it was so discomforting. But now I'll occasionally experience. It's almost like as if I have nerve damage Mm. and suddenly there'll be things that'll trigger. And in my head, I'll start to get like these knots randomly. Mm. Like they just start to irritate. And they, they just, they, I would say it's like one of those, like, like uh, those motocross trails, like there's like hills and there's like, you know, just like one after another. And that's the way it looks. And at early on, I've got through so many testing and no one can figure out what it is. And um, we always try to like, what'd you eat? And you know, what'd you do? Are you stressed? I mean, all these different things. And did you hit your head? None of that. And I used to take like Benadryl. I'm like, okay, like for, you know, the swelling. Um, but then that started to feel crappy because I like, I would take it and like, it made me drowsy and, you know. Um, so the only thing I do now is I, the only thing I found that works is I have to wear a bandana. So when I feel that, I, I tie a bandana on my head so that way it the compression mm. controls it and so when i travel i always have a bandana in my luggage it just stays there that's my travel bandana just for that and i remember one time wearing it and i was with somebody that didn't understand that i never told him this because I, I haven't really talked about that and uh he's like oh you're trying to be cool you think you're and i was like no man it has nothing to do with that. I make sure I don't go with a red bandana or a blue bandana. I go with white. Like, I'm smart about the bandanas I pick, too, because I don't want to be caught out there with the wrong bandana on. I'm like, right. I, I go white. Peace, man. Like, I'm just trying to keep my head from swelling up. But that's it. Thank God, man. Thank God. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm so blessed and lucky that physically I have my eyes, I have my limbs, I have my range of motion, my mobility. And then us also like mentally and emotionally, I have my mind, you know, yeah. and I have my heart. And I think, I think when some people say, well, JR, you pieced it together versus maybe some other veterans have a hard time. What's the difference? Well, I wasn't, in, yeah, I, I, I know I experienced something challenging and traumatic, but I also wasn't in combat for an extended period of time on multiple tours where I saw a lot of things. So my brain didn't have an opportunity to be mm. exposed to a lot of that. Good I'm not silly enough to sit here and say that I'm, yeah, well, I got over it. They should too. No, I know I'm incredibly lucky that I wasn't exposed to a lot of what my friends have been exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you've had this experience that, uh, it's strange. I was going to say that very few people have, but then on the other hand, very many people have, which is um, separating from your body in a way, separating who you are from what you see in the mirror, who you see in the mirror, right? Um, and I was going to say very few people have it because, you know, very few people will go through the kind of thing that you've gone through. On the other hand, getting older is a process of 
letting go of what you see in the mirror. <laughs> At least it is for mm. me, you know? Like, it, mm. you know, I, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I feel like when I looked in the mirror when I was around 30, I saw myself. Since then, I look in the mirror and I'm like, who the fuck is that old dude? You know? Because... <laughs> right? I still feel like that guy, that 30-year-old who was looking in the mirror, you know? Um, and it happened younger, too. Like, when I was 15 and I had braces and zits and everything, I'd look in the mirror and be like, that's not me. That's not me. That's some dorky kid. That's not me. So there was just a very brief period around 30 where that that's me, you know? Um, but But it must have been for you, like, you know, as you said, everything changed in an instant for you. I've had 30 years to go through this, you know, gradual experience of getting used to changes that you see. Um, But you've had this experience and, you know, you've mentioned silence and and I take it you've meditated and I don't know if you've done like float tanks or something. I have a buddy who owns a float tank center in Austin. If you ever want to go, he's I've never done that. But I would he, so take you up on that. Oh yeah, what when I'll send you his uh, info when we finish. He's he also he does uh, you know free stuff with vets, uh, returning vets who want some silent time. Like he he hooks them up, and he would definitely hook you up. Uh, Kevin Johnson, oh, I've had him awesome. on the podcast. He's an interesting cat. He uh, he not only has a float tank center, but he's uh, like a world class cave diver. So the guy. The guy knows about silence, you know? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, interesting. I don't guy. want to go there and he starts training me and starts trying to take me out on one of his excursions. Like, I'm not, it, I'm not, I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, he, won't, he won't drag you into it. He'll just make you an offer. Um, anyway, my, my point was that what I wanted to ask you about was that experience of, of recognizing, you know, in Buddhism, they say that there is an entity that is watching us live our lives. There's an, there's a part of you that, you know, uh, that, that has persists throughout lifetimes that's watching you having these challenges. Do, do you ever feel that there was some sort of destiny here, that this is what you're on the planet to deal with in this lifetime? Yeah. So there's that, that's a, there's two answers to that. So one is the sister that I lost or, you know, that, that passed away when I was three years old. Um, I never met her. She was born in El Salvador, stayed in El Salvador. And then my mother comes here. My mother meets my father. And then a year later, I'm born. I threw a wrench in all the plans that she had. And now my, my mother gets the call that my sister passes away. So I remember my mother crying. I remember my mother dealing with that. But I didn't understand it. So now fast forward. This is the second time I go to El Salvador. I'm nine years old. The first time I went, I was six. So I'm nine years old. And I remember going to visit my sister's gravesite. I'm standing there and I'm overwhelmed with emotion. I I have no idea why. 
I mean, I am crying as if her and I played together every single day of my life until her passing. Nobody could make sense of it. I come home and I just kind of move on with my life, right? I'm nine. Fast forward 10 years later, I'm 19 years old in Iraq in a Humvee. I'm literally burning alive. I'm trapped inside of a truck that is engulfed in flames. I'm conscious. In the mix of me screaming and yelling at the top of my lungs for someone to come pull me out. In the mix of me thinking about all the things that I wanted to do. The bucket list, the goals, the plans. Suddenly, there's this quiet place that just presents itself. And my sister, and the only way that I've ever seen her in one particular photo that my mother has, appears to me and tells me I'm going to be okay. And it felt as if not even a second later, I was pulled out of the Humvee. So... I was put into a medical-induced coma immediately. And three weeks later, I come out of this coma, and now I'm at the burn center for the military, which is in San Antonio, Texas. My mother's there, and I tell my mom about this. And as you can imagine, who, ne- who she never had closure mm-hmm. is now overwhelmed with emotion. And I don't really understand it. And, I, and as we're talking, processing what I shared with her, I remember my mother saying, she's your guardian angel. And I remember feeling to myself, oh yeah, oh. And there have been some pivotal things that have taken place in my life since then that have all happened like around her birthday. Right. I've had these incredible opportunities that I've gotten the call that I got this opportunity on her birthday. Um, And so I, I believe that my sister is my guardian angel. I believe that she's here with me. And of course, nobody can make sense of why she had to lose her life and why she's not here with us. But I feel like she still is through me. Mm. So, that's that's the first part of your your question related to do I feel like somebody you know something or somebody is sort of looking over me? Yes. The second part of that is do I believe this is my destiny? Absolutely. At the expense of losing half of my face, at the expense of losing you know half of my body, I hundred percent believe so. I'm more effective. I'm more happy than. I can only assume, because I don't know, than anything else that I would have done in my life had I not been injured. And it's only because I was willing to accept. That's it. That's what it really boils down to. I was willing to accept that the old ideals that I had were no longer. And then to embrace this new opportunity to reinvent myself. So, you know, I'm sure Theo shared this with you, but like I have a podcast and it's called Rebirth. 
And the whole idea is, as many veterans say, the day that they were injured, they refer to it as their alive day. I refer to the day that I was injured as my rebirth. Hmm. And I believe that all of us are experiencing rebirths throughout life, whether it's because you experience this sort of trauma or as you stated earlier, we're going through life and suddenly we see that we're changing. Things are changing. When did it change? And we're all having to pivot. We're all having to embrace this new identity that we see now when we look in the mirror, whether that's physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever. So for me, we're all having rebirths. And I believe that I had to go. I don't think it was ever my destiny to be in the military. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't now, I don't think that I was intended to be in the army for 20 years. I think I was intended to go there and be used as a springboard for me to get to where I'm going today. But I can mm-hmm. tell you that I don't think I would be where I am today had it not been me accepting and understanding the opportunity I had. Because then I potentially would have fell into that unfortunate statistic. Yeah. Or maybe I would be a veteran right now that's in, you know, that doesn't feel like I've found it yet. But it's all because my best friend one day, I I told you my father left when I was nine months old. I've never grew up with a man that ever said, I love you. And here I am now, 22, 23, 24 years old. I'm angry. And a guy that I work with at a nonprofit, he is a 20-year Air Force veteran. And he would always end the phone conversations or anytime we saw each other in person, every time we you know, went our own ways, he would always end with, I love you. Hmm. And that was so odd to me. And I would always just say, all right, man, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> See ya, bro. You know, the little, little, little pat on the back. Yeah, bro hug. And one, yeah, the bro hug. And one, one night he just like sat down and talked to me and just told me I needed to like, you know, pay attention. And he told me I needed to work on, you know, me, the complete me, the whole me. And I tell you that it was such a turning pivotal moment in my life that the next day when I saw him, I was the first one to say, I love you. Because I finally met a man that unconditionally, like I felt loved me, that created a safe place for me to be vulnerable and share and be open and honest with my darkest secrets and darkest fears darkest thoughts he embraced it didn't judge me and instead he said all right that's cool what do we do with that now and for me that's all i want to do man is 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 i have found ways to find that space for myself and that's all i i care about in this life man is i just want to impact people and allow people to understand that it's not over. Just, just, just ride out the storm. Just yeah. ride it out, man. Just hang on, anchor down. Trust me. I had some dark days. I still do. Like I'm still human. And I have days where if I feel like I, I still get butt hurt, for example, if I reach out to somebody for whatever reason, they don't respond or they'll say they respond, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go away and I'm pinging them and they, they don't respond. I'm the, I'm the guy that gets butt hurt, takes it personal. And then is like, I'm going to stop liking their shit on Instagram. How about that? <laughs> That'll show you. 
that'll teach you. Yeah. yeah, you'll notice that out of your thousands of followers that I didn't like your stuff, won't you? Right? Uh, like, that's who that's who I am. And I'm not proud of that, but it's so childish of me. And I know it. And I got to work on that shit. But I'm that guy. Mm-hmm. But, like, I had to finally get to a, you know, I, I, like, shit like that puts me in a different headspace sometimes. Stuff like that, like, puts me in a place of the world's against me. Oh, nobody, like, it's all about what, what narrative are you going to feed your mind? Yeah. And, and luckily I have a wife that will be like, she's so, she's so Mother Teresa. She'll say, well, you know, you got to think about maybe, you know, you don't know what they're going through. You don't know what's going on in their life and you don't. And I'm like, yeah, but you, you already responded. Why couldn't you just continue responding? Like, and she breaks it down for me. And I'm like, you're right. Think of the other side. Don't just think of our own. Think of someone like take yourself. That That's part of being able to connect with every human being is to be able to say, oh, I can I can connect with potentially what's going on on their end. Yeah. You know, you, you said something earlier I, w- I wanted to circle back to because it I think it's so profound. You just sort of passed over it. Um, but you were talking about how, um, you know, your the narrative is that you survived. You're this hero. You survived or not your narrative, but the narrative that's sort of created around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said, but actually I died and I needed to deal with the grief of letting go of who I was before that day. And I feel like that's an underappreciated insight that growth requires death. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, life eats life. (laughs) There's just this, this process. And so if you want to grow, you want to transform into a, a more complete, more mature, more interesting, stronger person you need to go through the grieving process of letting the earlier versions die. And I think so much growth is stopped by people who are afraid to grieve that death, you know, yeah. of the former self. Yeah. Um, because our, our culture is so uh, grief averse, right? We hide death away. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to, you know, someone dies, they put them in a stainless steel hermetically sealed coffin like what is that gonna change you know right Um, right this this town where i'm living it's it's an interesting place um as i told you before we started one of the things that's really interesting is it's the only place in north america that has a permit to perform open air cremations um and they do them out in the desert and there's a pyre out there and uh Uh, a simple but beautiful place and when someone from the town dies if they want it if they want this this ceremony the people of the town go out there at dawn and i attended a ceremony uh, a couple years ago and it was i mean you know your relationship with fire is is very different from mine um but it, it was a beautiful thing to see the the children actually lit the fire under their mother's body and uh, in an hour and a half, everything was gone. It was just went into the sky um, while her kids and her friends talked about her life and the things she loved. And 
it was a very moving experience. And and what I the reason I mention it is that it's it's embracing this grieving. It's embracing the fact that a life begins and ends, you know, and not just begins and then we hide the end and pretend it never happens. Lived happily ever after. Nonsense. Yeah, it's such a it's such a beautiful thing to witness the loss of something, right? Like it, it, like think, and that's the way I've rewired my mind to, to and, and I believe now, and this is to your point, I, at least I think, what a blessing it is for me to be alive, to now be able to grieve the loss of that individual that was once. Right. Cause I could have died and then that's it. Like, or I could still be alive today and not have the capability, whether, physically or mentally to see that but how lucky am i to be in that position to be able to witness that and it's it's so true i mean i had to die i did die and i believe that even till this day there are components of me that still die Sure. The things that I wanted to do in my 20s, the things that I wanted to do in my early 30s, the things that I wanted to do at 32, 34, now I'm going to be 36. They're all very different and they're constantly evolving. And so many of us want, as you said, to be the, the person, the person that has this insight, the person that has this knowledge, the person that people refer to as an expert or go to and seek out. But that comes, as you said, through loss. Growth only happens when you experience loss and when you're uncomfortable. Mm. And you have to be uncomfortable. When I tell you that I was 22 and I wanted to be the speaker and people didn't give me an opportunity and I was pissed and angry at everybody, I'll equally tell you now looking back, I wasn't ready. Yeah. I wanted to be ready. I wanted to be the guy. I thought I was ready. I was not ready. By any means was I ready. And 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 I say that because it's important for people listening right now who want to be whatever it is they want to be and that feel like, well, right now it's not happening. People don't get it. People aren't listening. Well, maybe you're not ready or maybe the world isn't ready for you. Hmm. And instead of focusing on that, start working on the craft, start working on what you have to work on. And, and that's now like I'm in that position now where it's like, okay, my agents or anybody else doesn't see the vision, doesn't understand what I'm trying to accomplish or what I want to speak about. That's cool. No big deal. I'm going to go to work and I'm going to sit here and try to articulate this and put this together and then I'll distribute it and I guarantee you they're going to call. And they'll be like, oh, this is working. Like, oh, let's let's talk about this now. <laughs> but I'm in a, I, I know that now. Yeah. And if we all want to be the best versions of ourselves and the best versions of all humankind, we have to be willing to let go of something. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable. There's a there's a um uh, a form of yoga that my wife introduced me to is called yin yoga y i n yoga 
And the whole idea is within this first, within, not, well, within the hour, you sit in maybe four to five poses and you hold each pose for three to 10 minutes. Depends on the pose. It hurts as hell. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. But when it's over and that hour is over, my wife and I call it our therapy. We're like, oh, we just, we're going to therapy today. Like mm. a couple's therapy. But the reason I mention that is because every time we start the class, the instructor, she asks, has anybody not taken yin yoga before? And there'll always be one or two hands. And she'll say, well, in yin yoga, you have to learn how to sit in it. And you're going to have to learn how to breathe through it. Hmm. And it's going to be uncomfortable, but you have to connect to your breath. And she says this all the time, and it's just regiment for her, right? But I'm now, I asked her one day, I was like, can I, that's so powerful. Can I, can I use that? And she's like, of course. I don't think she even realizes what she's saying, but how powerful and beautiful it is that people should actually process that and listen to that. When I am going through something incredibly challenging and difficult in my life, I sit in it Hmm. and I breathe through it. Right. I'm connected to it. I I don't allow myself to to be distracted by every other thing, every other opinion. No, No, I'm... This is happening for a reason. There's a reason this is presenting to, presented in my life at this very moment. It doesn't make sense right now, and it probably won't make sense in a couple of years from now, or 5, 20 years from now. But in this very moment, what I have to do to get myself through this is sit in it, close my eyes, oh, and breathe because this shit hurts. And now I can tell you that when I go back and do yin yoga and I do those same poses, I'm looking around the room and watching everybody else. (gasps) And yet I'm over here like, I'm good. Let me go deeper into this. Mm. I don't shy away from that now. When something hurts and something feels uncomfortable, I'm like your friend, Kevin. You know, he's a diver and I dive in, man. I go to that dark place. And I, I, and there's no light, but that's, you find the light within stop seeking that light through other avenues, right? Like first you have to find it within yourself. You have to be connected. You have to connect all the wires and everything in order for that car to get you to your destination, to that point, you have to make sure internally everything is working properly and connected. That's all I spend my time trying to do. And, 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 and I get that beautiful gift through so many different sources. I, I, you know, you mentioned, you know, Buddhism earlier and I, I had this experience, uh, about six months ago. I had just done a speaking engagement. I was traveling home. I was on a plane and there was something that just triggered my mind. And suddenly I went from feeling so happy about this event that now I just kind of was like, eh, something just, I don't know what it was. I really don't remember. I get off of the plane. I walk out to my car. Uh, I go to the booth to pay to exit the parking structure. And an older lady is there whom I've never seen. Mind you, I'm on the road all the time. I hand her my ticket. She looks at my hand and she says, 
what happened to your hand? And I said, well, I was burned. Oh, wow. How were you burned? I said, I was burned. I was in the army and I was burned overseas in Iraq. Chris, I've shared this so many times. I'm like, I, I had a cookie last night. Ah, it's not a big deal, right? <laughs> it's like, I was burned in the military. I was overseas. Wow. Can I pray over you? Uh, sure. She takes my hand. She holds my hand. She doesn't pray out loud. She prays to herself quietly. And I'm sitting there in my car and I'm like, do I close my eyes? Do I leave them open? What do I do? What's the proper procedure here? Put it in park or neutral. Yeah, right. I'm looking behind me. There's people behind us that are probably like, what the hell? These two are holding hands. <laughs> and she finishes and I don't know what the prayer was about, but she finishes and she takes another ticket and she writes on it and she hands it to me. And she says, Amitoba. Amitoba. And I, I said, okay. And she says, Amitoba. And there's probably someone listening right now that really knows about this, that they're going to, you know, send you and I a message and be like, tell this dude, this is what it actually means. But she said to me, it is a, a Buddhist that represents wisdom and infinite light. And she says, you are infinite light and you are wisdom and I see that light in you and she goes on and on and by the time we were done and I was able to leave the parking structure I felt so amazing better than I did after I was done with that keynote I called my wife and it was I was coming home around dinner time my wife's you know cooking and I remember saying Amitoba and she's like, what? And I said, I'll meet Tobai. And she's like, and I, I, and I was like, I'll explain it when I get home. But I was so, I was so happy. Why do I share that? Every single one of us are going to encounter somebody or something that is going to give us a beautiful gift, a gift of encouragement, a gift of life, a gift of light. As much as she said, I represent that. And that moment for me, she represented that. And if we're all paying attention, because I had a choice multiple times. I had a choice when she said, what happened to you? To not engage. Hmm. Where did it happen to you? To not engage. Can I pray over you? Not engage. Amitoba, I don't care. Move on. Instead, I said, I'm here for a reason. Yeah. This thing is here for a reason. Let me sit with it. Let me process it. Let me roll with it. And look at this beautiful gift that she gave me. And I've experienced that, and I'm sure you have as well. I've experienced that on countless occasions where people have given me the gift that I needed in that moment to carry me through whatever challenges that I'm going through. That's Dude, it. I, 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 go, ahead. go ahead. No, I was like, that's it. Like, you know, I may be looked yeah. at as like this huge motivator, and and but I'm still human. I don't wake up every day and be like, today's going to be a jolly day. You know, like, like I try, but I'm also human. And I say, today sucks. I, I, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Things are against me. I'm trying to accomplish this, whatever. 
And there's all these beautiful things in life that just get us out of our own head and allow us to have that out-of-body experience that makes us look at ourselves. But how deep are you willing to look? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I feel like you exemplify this notion of um, letting things flow through you, you know? Um, you've had these amazing experiences and rather than have them stagnate in you or, um, you know, have to carry them around alone for the rest of your life, it's really beautiful the way you're allowing them to flow through you. I'm sure people... Lots of people listening to this uh, have had an experience of Amitoba with you today, just hearing um, some of the things that you've said. Um, do you know Wim Hof by any chance? No. I'm going to introduce you to him. I, you guys need to know each other. He is known as the Iceman. Uh, he holds all the world records for exposure to extreme cold water. He swims under ice caps and... Um, I've sat in an ice barrel with him for three minutes and uh, I oh jumped in mountain God. streams and he leads these workshops. Um, essentially, a lot of what we're talking about, confronting fear, uh, confronting pain, uh, using breathing as a way to um, bring your body to places that you didn't think your body could go. Uh, oh, and, I'm in, you know. Yeah, he's he's an amazing dude. He he fucking climbed Mount Everest, you know, in shorts. Like it's that's this dude. He's <laughs> he's he's incredible. And there's something oh about the two of you. You two should like do workshops together or something. You know, yeah. this amazing, I'd be like, listen, uh, I'll do the Mount Everest thing with you, but I'll have like one pants leg. I'll cut off one pants leg. I'll go <laughs> half of the way with you. I'm not doing completely no short. I'll just like have one pants leg. Yeah, but yeah. you know. I think I think that's the beauty, man. And I appreciate having this dialogue with you. I appreciate I, I was I was, you know, really excited, honestly, to talk to you because and, you know, learning about you through Theo and then looking at your website and looking at your TED talk. And I was like, oh, this guy is going to take me to another place. This guy is going to like like he's going to make me think of things differently than maybe someone else that, you know, worries about a network and worries about ratings or whatever. He's just going to be honest and real and open and force me to think differently. Mm. And I love that. And, and I think that's that, that, like, you're talking about these two individuals that are, you know, are, are your friends and the things that you've done. Those are the things that I want to do. You know, those are the things that I want to expose myself to because we're all stuck in some sort of freaking bubble. All of us are stuck in some sort of freaking box. And most of us don't, we allow other people's labels to now dictate which box we're going to stay in. I'm at the point in my life now where like you put me in a box, I'm going to poke some holes in that mother. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to look out of that box and I'm going to see some other box that I think I just, I belong in and I'm going for that mm -hmm. thing. And when you say like I allow things to flow through me, I do. Like I don't, I don't give weight to too much, because I believe everything is is like I think Theo says this. Seasons, everything is seasons, and just like the season that we're in, everything passes. It comes and it goes, and I don't put a lot of weight into that kind of stuff. 
My wife sometimes will have anxiety about, oh my God, you know, what could happen? Why? It hasn't. You're going to lose all this time right now of being able to be present with me, with our daughter, with our family, mm. with whatever you're doing, because you're worried about what might happen. And then when it doesn't happen, you've lost all this damn time. I don't give way to anything like that. If I feel it, I'm there with it. I'm connected to it. And the minute it's gone, I'm connected to whatever that emotion now is. Whatever that season is, I'm, I'm with it. I'm dressed for all seasons, baby. I just take the layers off and then I put them right back on, depending on how I feel. It's that simple. <laughs> it's that simple, man. And, yeah. you know, this this notion of people say you're so wise and knowledgeable. And I'm like, yeah, but... I am a reflection of everybody that I've met in the last 17 years. Knowledge is not power. Knowledge applied is power. At least that's what I believe. You can know all the shit you want in the world. What good does it do if you're not actually applying it to first and foremost your own life and to those in your tribe and then potentially anybody else outside of your tribe? So for me, it's a matter of I'm 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 not just going to survive because I think all of us have this ability to become survivors. I'm going to thrive, and I'm going to, on my terms, do what I feel is right for me. And I know that in vulnerability, you find community. And so for me, telling you everything that I've told you in this last I don't know however long we've been speaking. It's because I know that there's somebody listening right now, even if it's one person that's going to send you a message and you'll forward it to me or they'll find me on social media or whatever. And they'll say, hey, man, when you talked about this point, Amitoba, bye. (laughs) And I'll know. And I'll know. And that's all I need. You know, that's it, man. But it's, it's all about learning from other people. It's all about... Being vulnerable enough to say, I don't know everything. I don't know all of the answers, but I know there are people that have fi- have figured it out, that have done that studying, that have understood this inside and out. So why not go to those sources? Let them be the ones to guide you. Let them be the ones to give you something, right? And I, 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 I love, I'm just so curious. I, I, I'm so curious. I'm not... I'm not scared like of my curiosity. I don't shy away from my curiosity. I ask questions. I want to know and I listen. I don't care if they said curiosity killed the cat. Well, I'll die curious as hell and I'll die finding the answers. I'm cool with that. Yeah. 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 Life, man. You've already died, man. It, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I got stung by a scorpion on the top of a Mayan temple in Guatemala one night, uh, the full moon of April 1989. I was tripping on acid, and a local Guatemalan guy said, oh, yeah, the scorpions are lethal. You're going to die. So I I wasn't, you know, it's nothing like your experience in Iraq, but... For the next couple of hours, I thought I was dying while I was, you know. Uh, when you're tripping, you always think you're dying. <laughs> like, yeah, like, 
<laughs> you are, right? That's the point. <laughs> that yeah, is the point. Let it go. <laughs> let it go. Listen, dude, I, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you go. You've been, you asked how it's over an hour and a half. We've been talking. I don't want to go full Rogan on you. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, this has been a real honor for me. I, I, I'm so, so happy to have met you. And uh, I look forward to those beers when they come. Yeah, man, I'll meet you on the road, wherever that van is. I'm going to inherit that yeah. van, okay? <laughs> <laughs> do, do the DNA right, test. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for having me on, man. This was a real pleasure to have this this conversation with you. And again, I look forward to us finding each other on the road one day and and just exploring uh, about life. And I want to hear more of these stories about Guatemala or anywhere right. else that you've been. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks. All right, JR. If you're listening, I'm uh, I'm near a place called Libby, Montana. So come on up. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, obviously, I did. It's uh, one of the great joys of this podcast that uh, people with such extraordinary experiences and perspectives on life that are informed by um, real real suffering and real uh, digging deep, you know. It's a real uh, honor for me that they find time in their lives to chat with me and uh, and to uh, make themselves available to you. So, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I'm going to let you go, as I always do, with a little ditty from uh, Carsey Blanton, preceded by my mom talking about what's going on out in the uh, cottage. <laughs> she, uh, it always cracks me up when I hear her call it the cottage. It it was a dismal garage, you know, one of those dark garages full of cobwebs and dusty boxes and smelled like mushrooms and dampness and mildew and... um when I started to get a little money from Sex at Dawn, I decided to invest it in uh, fixing up that uh, garage that uh, she and my sister share and make it into a, sort of an office space for my dad where he could go out and watch a football game without bothering my mom or you know get some work done, just sort of have his own space. Um, it's funny. And now it's... Uh, storage area for uh, a bunch of t-shirts and beer koozies and whatever else she's got out there so help her uh, help her keep things flowing if you want uh, some civilized to death beer koozies and t-shirts we're looking into uh, doing uh, what are they called buffs you know like a, a thing that goes around your neck that you can pull up into some sort of a face covering uh, with the civilized to death logo on it and yeah, we'll see how that goes I think we're doing some preliminary investigation. It'll be a while till we have them, but it seems like a pretty cool thing to have. Um, all right. So that was J.R. Martinez, and uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I will come to you soon from some other remote location in the middle of fucking nowhere because that's where I like to be. I hope you're where you like to be, and if not, I hope you look for another spot soon. Bye. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. 
sex at dawn, civilized to death, vanthropology, tangentially speaking, paleo modern, and talking out of my ass. <laughs> She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You want to shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 